أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلن تجد له وليا مرشدا ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله وصفيه من خلقه وخليله تركنا على المحجة البيضاء ليلها كنهارها لا يزيغ عنها إلا هالك ولا ينتظم في سلكها إلا سالك اللهم صلي وسلم وأنعم وأكرم وبارك على حبيبنا وشفيعنا وقرات عيوننا سيدنا ومولانا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك عليه في الأولين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك عليه في الآخرين اللهم صل وسلم وأنعم وأكرم وبارك عليه في الملأ الأعلى إلى يوم الدين يقول عز من قائل يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون اللهم اجعلنا منهم يا رب العالمين أوصي نفسي وإياكم بتقوى الله وبلزوم طاعته آناء الليل وأطراف النهار على الوجه الذي يرضيه عنا in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, to him we belong and to him we shall return. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his infinite grace and boundless mercy to send an abundance of prayers and peace upon our most beloved messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with us on this blessed day of Jumu'ah. May he forgive our sins and our shortcomings, our weaknesses, and may he make us a true people of taqwa, a true people who are God-conscious, God-fearing, God-loving, who live existentially in a state of loving surrender to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May we live and die and be resurrected upon the state of La ilaha illallah, Muhammadun Rasulullah. Brothers and sisters, today we all are in a state of continued grief as we see what is transpiring to our brothers and sisters in Gaza, as we see the bombardment continued, as we see the death and destruction, the genocidal campaign upon the people of Gaza, upon the people of Palestine, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remove this burden from upon them. 
May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah knows, and He sees the oppression, He sees the tyranny. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, لا تحسب أن الله غافلا عما يعمل الظالمون. Don't think for a moment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is والعياذ بالله حاشا asleep at the wheel. Allah sees and Allah knows. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to will and decree that which He sees best. اللهم آمين يا رب العالمين. Brothers and sisters, in this particular khutbah, my intention is to highlight perhaps something that is so necessary, especially in this particular moment. One of the very egregious and nefarious lies that are spread, and it's done in a very evil way, is to somehow paint a picture that Muslims, Arabs, have an inherent problem with Jews. There is this egregious abomination of a lie that Muslims and Arabs do not want, cannot, hate, etc. Jewish people. And this is an absolute lie, not only from a scriptural perspective, but from a civilizational perspective. And it's important as Muslims, and humanity in general, to learn the history, to understand, well, what does history tell us about the narrative of Jewish and Muslim coexistence? Rather than trying to paint a picture in this particular modern political moment that Muslims, Arabs, they are a threat for the Jewish people. That is a lie, a lie, a lie, and it must be addressed for what it is. Because when we look into the history, and by the way, we don't read this necessarily only from Muslim sources. There are scores of Jewish academics, Jewish historians, Jewish chroniclers who will tell you about the rich heritage of coexistence and how the Jewish people thrived in a way unparalleled the way that they thrived in the lands of the Muslimin. And I'll say this and I'll share from, from this origin story. Last, last, uh, the last khutbah I had here, I spoke about the story of Sayyiduna Umar and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and when he entered into Jerusalem. But I'll start off from that point because what I did not say was that how Sayyiduna Umar, he is the one who brought the Jewish families back into Jerusalem because the Byzantines had exiled, they had exiled and criminalized Jewish presence and existence or even any semblance of allowance to live there and pray and live in peace and security. The Byzantines did that. When Sayyidina Umar came and the Byzantines tried to apply pressure, a part of the conditions was you're not allowed to bring the Jews back. But Sayyidina Umar, because he is an inheritor of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he is the one who brought the Jewish families back. And when the Jewish families came back to Jerusalem and they saw Sayyidina Umar cleaning up the Temple Mount because the Byzantines had used the Temple Mount as a, uh, a garbage heap. And that is sacred land. That is the place of the Isra'il al-Mi'raj. So Sayyidina Umar was cleaning it up. The Jewish families saw him. They praised him. They cried with him. And they cleaned alongside of him in honor of what he was doing to, to protect and honor the sacred. And subhanAllah, that is the heritage that colors the existence, the coexistence of Muslims and Jews for over a thousand years. A very important historian 
by the name of Zion Zohar. He writes in a book on the history of Sephardic Jews. Sephardic Jews are the Arab Jews, the Jews who lived in Muslim lands, etc. He says that the Jews, when the Muslims came to Al-Andalus, it was the Jews who were under that brutal occupation who welcomed the Muslims as their liberators. They loved the idea that the Muslims were coming because now peace, safety, security would be in their realm. By the way, this is not Muslim propaganda. Zion Zohar, this is a Jewish historian who writes in the 8th and 9th century how they experienced the Muslim community. I'm going to give you just highlights so you understand the heritage, the history. For 1,000 years we're going to talk about. 1,000 years. What was it, what was the relationship between the Muslim and the Arabs and the Jewish communities? In the 10th century, in Al-Andalus, the prime minister, the prime minister of the Muslim ruler was a Jewish man by the name of Hazda ibn Jabrut. In the 10th century, the prime minister, the prime minister of the Muslim ruler in Al-Andalus was a Jewish man. Think about what that entails. What does that represent? Because you can just read that as a fact, but when you actually process what that represents, that meant that there was a real earnest, genuine existence of coexistence, a presence of real rich coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. In the 11th century, the Prime Minister of Granada under Muslim rule was a Jewish man by the name of Samuel Ibn Nagrella. Now listen to this. His biographer writes the following. A Jewish biographer writes about this Jewish Prime Minister. He says, that Samuel was able to help the Jews in ways immeasurable across all of Muslim areas. From as far west, to, from Morocco, Tunisia, all the way to Iraq. What does that mean? That Samuel ibn Nagrella, as a prime minister for a Muslim ruler, was able to support the Jewish people across the Muslim lands in ways in which he was able to fund the study of the Torah, the study of the Mishnah, the study of the, 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 the Talmud, to help them in ways in which to help them in their civilizational growth. Why was a Jewish man, a prime minister in the 11th century to a Muslim ruler and then able to fund and help the projects of Jewish people from the east to west, including Jerusalem? What does that tell you about the civilizational heritage between Muslims and Jews? The Jewish people thrived always for a thousand years in Muslim lands. One of the greatest intellectual Jewish minds, someone who's known as the second Moses, the second Moses, this is what Jewish people call him, Maimonides, Musa ibn Maimun. Where did he thrive? Where was he positioned in, in a way that he was able to impact the Jewish community, the Jewish people? to invest in his studies of his culture and his people, theology, to write books, books that I, when I was in Al-Azhar, I read. He has a famous book known as Dala'ilul Ha'irin. Maimonides has a famous book known as Dala'ilul Ha'irin, the guide to the, of the perplexed. He was a theologian. Where did he thrive? And when times got struck, when he was struggling in Al-Andalus, just like many other groups from Muslims and Christians were struggling in Al-Andalus, where did he go find refuge? He found refuge in Egypt, also lands under Muslim rule. He found refuge there, 
and he became the chief surgeon of the Sultan. And he was able to live there, and he died there, and he was always praised. By, by the way, not just, not just the Jewish people, Muslims as well. Because much, much of his theological academic output is of great benefit to the Muslims as well, just from a purely dialectical theological perspective. We'll just leave that aside. But this is a man who thrived in the, lands of Mus in, in the, in the Muslim lands, achieved the peak of his academic output in the lands of the Muslimin, coexisting with Muslimin. This is the heritage of Muslims and Jews. And this is something that modern political movements do not want people to know. They want to completely create an anachronistic image of the history between Muslims and Jews. That Muslims and Jews have somehow an intrinsic you know, disagreement between them. That is not the case. I'll continue and show more examples. Benjamin of Tudela, a Spanish Jew who traveled to Iraq and returned home. So imagine this. This is a Spanish Jew who traveled all the way from Al-Andalus to Iraq to, trek on the, to go visit the, the, the Jews of Iraq and then came back to Al-Andalus. Benjamin of Tudela. He says that I went there and I found in Iraq 40,000 Jews thriving. This is his, to his own accounts. A Jewish chronicler travels the lands of the Muslimin. Was he threatened? He was able to travel from one side to the other and return. He was honored, protected, safe, secure. He checks up on his brothers in, in, in Iraq and he says that I see them thriving. That I have, they are at the epitome of Jewish study, Talmudic studies, Torah-based studies. This is the history. And the Babylonian Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, which is one of the most essential scriptural texts for the Jews, the completion of the Babylonian Talmud was done in Iraq. It was completed in Iraq under Muslim rule. So the, the epitome of, of the Jewish community's theological uh, development happened in the lands of the Muslimin. The top Jewish scholars lived in Iraq, by the way, i.e. the Grand Muftis, you know, the, we would call them in the Muslim Ummah, the Grand Muftis. The Grand Muftis of the Jewish people lived in Iraq. And they would be able to dispense laws that were applicable to Jews across the entire region from Iraq. That's the history. Not written by Muslimin, but written by Jewish historians, Jewish academics, Jewish chroniclers. This is the real history of Muslims and Jews. And one of the most underlying themes that you see prevalent in the, in the books, in the history books, the academic works, in the chronicling, you'll see the following words, that the Jews benefited from a beautiful sense of security, prosperity, honor, and dignity. That that was the condition of the Jewish people alongside the Muslimin for a thousand years. They had security, they had prosperity, they had honor and dignity. An Italian rabbi, and I'm, I'm going to wrap up soon from this side of the khutbah. An Italian rabbi in the 14th century travels to Jerusalem. His name is his name is Obalia Yarida. This is an Italian rabbi who in the 4th century, by the way, I'm covering from the 7th, and every century I'm giving you a flavor of what it looked like and what the Jewish chroniclers and academics say. In the 14th century, he travels from Italy to Jerusalem. And what does he find? He says, it is amazing that the Jews 
are not per 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 persecuted. Because don't forget, he's coming from European lands. And the Jewish experience in Europe is starkly different. What is known in academia as the lachrymose history of the Jewish people. What you see in Europe was evil, was vile. What happened to the Jewish people in Europe was unspeakable, undoubtedly. So he goes, he travels as an Italian Jew to Jerusalem. And he says, it is remarkable to see how the Jewish people are being treated in Jerusalem. He says, they are not persecuted at all by the Arabs. And he says that as a visitor, I find that the Arabs are extremely kind. They're very generous, very friendly, very hospitable. They are not alarmed. Look at, look at how this Italian chronicler is speaking. He says they are not alarmed by our gatherings or our sight. Why? Because that was in contradistinction to what was happening in Europe, where Jews were persecuted, where Jews were brutalized in European lands, not in Muslim lands. So he's astonished. He's he goes back to his people and is accounting for what he experienced in Jerusalem. That we, we, it was not weird to see us. They were not uh, un alarmed by our gatherings. Quite the contrary, they were very hospitable, very warm, and very loving. Once again, Jewish chroniclers accounting for the history of Muslims and Jews. Rabbi Elijah Kapasari speaking about how Jews were thriving in the Ottoman lands. This is a rabbi who lived during the Ottoman period. And he says that, that the Jews in Ottoman lands thrived in their arts, in their architecture, in their literature, in their scripture in ways unparalleled. His name is Rabbi Elijah Kapseri. Another Italian chronicler, David DeRossi, he speaks about how the Jews were thriving in Alexandria, Egypt, in the same way they were thriving in their art, they were thriving in their literature, they were thriving in their scriptural study, they were producing rabbis, they were able to study and learn and produce rabbis, where? All across Muslim lands. Karen Armstrong, and you, all of you should know who Karen Armstrong is, and you should buy her book on the history of Jerusalem. She, she says that the system that the Muslims established, listen to Karen Armstrong, None of these people that I have mentioned are Muslim. None of them. She says that the system that the Muslims established allowed the Muslims, Christians, and Jews to exist peacefully for the first time. Never had Muslims, Christians, and Jews existed peacefully like with the system that the Muslim Ummah had established. These are, these are the verifications, the affirmations that are made by sincere, genuine academics, historians, who study, who have an honest eye of the human condition and human civilization, this is what they are saying. Two more accounts, and then I'll transition, inshallah. Dean Philip Bell, he is a professor of Jewish studies and history. He says, Dean Philip Bell, he is, he is a very noted and acclimated Jewish historian. He says that Jews thrived alongside Muslims for centuries on end in arts, literature, religious scholarship, and then he says, it is only, Dean Philip Bell, it is only recent political developments that have tried to cast doubt on this history. You see that. He himself, a Jewish historian, is saying what? That the undeniable heritage and history of Muslims and Jews is unquestionable. It is known. It is peaceful. It is thriving, security, etc. 
It is only the advent of the modern political reality that has tried to cast doubt on that history. Edmund Cohen, and you can go back to the khutbah, get these names and do the research for yourself. Edmund Cohen, he is a Jewish academic and historian. He studied, he studied the sigillat of the Ottoman courts. Pay attention to this, subhanAllah. This is a Jewish academic, Edmund Cohen, who studies the sigillat. The sigillat are the records, the court records of the Ottoman Empire. He produced a two-volume book just analyzing what he saw and read about the Jewish experience in the Ottoman courts. And look at what he says, subhanAllah. He says, the Jews of Jerusalem had their own autonomous rabbinical courts. That from, because in our sacred heritage, in Islam, the Jews are allowed and should have their own courts to govern their own affairs. And the Christians have their own courts to govern their own affairs. And so it's no different that under Ottoman, in the Ottoman lands, the Jews had their own rabbinical courts that they could go to. To have their familiar matters, just like you come to the sheikh here, sheikh, my family, my this, my that, uh, business issues, can you adjudicate? They, would, they had their own rabbinical courts alongside. I just want you to think of what that actually represents. For the Muslim community to support and protect the right of the Jews to have their own rabbinical courts alongside the Ottoman Muslim judicial courts. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about the heritage? What does that tell you about the undergirding philosophy? It is a true spirit of coexistence, an honoring of the other, a respect and a love for the human condition, a respect for alternate traditions, a respect for Christianity, a respect for Judaism. That is our heritage. And no one, no matter what kind of malicious lies are tried or attempted to spread about Muslims and Arabs and, the, and their relationship to the Jewish community, history speaks for itself and the Jewish chroniclers, the Jewish historians, the Jewish academics, they present an absolutely profound story. And then he notes, so the same Edmund Cohen, he notes the following. He said that despite, and he, two-volume academic work, he says that despite that many Jews had their own rabbinical courts to go to, they would at times, very often, this is after analyzing the court records, they would go to the Muslim judges to adjudicate their affairs. So although at times Jews, Jews had their own rabbinical courts, they would choose on their own accord to go to the Muslim judges to have their familial, financial, business-related matters adjudicated by Muslim judges. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? What does that tell you about the prosperity, the peace, the security, the honor, the dignity of the Jewish people in that time alongside Muslimin? That they have the choice to go to their own rabbinical courts and they can go to the Muslim judges and in the sigilat, in the court records, you will find that very often Jews wanted themselves to go to the Muslimin. Brothers and sisters, this is a highlighted, very high level treatment of a 1,000 year profound history. And I believe it is criminal, wallahi al-azim, I believe it is criminal that the lies are perpetrated in society today to say that somehow there is an existential problem between Muslims and Jews. That is a lie. That is a lie that's being 
propagated by political movements and political ideologies. Avi Schleim. I'll give you another name. Avi Schleim. He is a, his, he is a Jewish historian in Oxford, alive until today. He, he, his early life was in Iraq. By the way, Iraq, when it comes to Iraqi Jews, a profound history. As I mentioned, they thrived in their rabbinical studies in Iraq in a way. Their grand muftis were all living in Iraq. Avi Schleim, he says that in my early life, my father, in the lands of Iraq, we were identifiable Jews. And there were over 70,000, 80,000 Jews that he lived amongst. He said, in Iraq, we thrived as a family. This was before 1948. We thrived as a Jewish family in Iraq. We had no problems, no issues. My father, he says, and you can read his memoir, the memoir of an Arab Jew. He says that my father was a judge in Iraq, and we were a family that was of upper, upper middle class status. We enjoyed the luxuries of an upper middle class lifestyle as Jews, where? In Iraq. He says, and then he speaks about what transpired that ultimately his father decided to move to the newly founded state of Israel. He says a line that really moved me profoundly. He says, I left Iraq as a Jew and I arrived in Israel as an Iraqi. You understand what he says there? I left Iraq as a Jew and I arrived in Israel as an Iraqi. What he's saying is that immediately, and this is an Iraqi Jew, he said immediately, I was of second clan status, second class status. Why is that the case, brothers and sisters? See, today, today, when humanity is critiquing what is transpiring in those lands, they're not critiquing anything that has to do with Judaism as a sacred tradition. This is a 3,000-year-old sacred tradition that the human condition does not have a problem with. Of course, there's people who have whatever their political agendas, but when you talk about the heritage and the history, when today people are critiquing what's transpiring in those lands, they are not critiquing a sacred tradition, they are critiquing a political ideology. The political ideology known as Zionism, that is a 100-plus-year-old political ideology that is Eurocentric, that is ethno-supremacist, that is a settler-colonial political ideology that was founded by an atheist, Theodor Herzl. And when Theodor Herzl himself, in his memoirs, talks about the lands of Palestine, he is talking about the manifestation of this political project. You know what he says? He says, I went to Palestine because in those years they were, you know, where can we fulfill our political project? Please come forward, brothers and sisters. Please come forward. Where can we fulfill our political project? So he says, I go to the lands of Palestine. You know what he said in his memoirs? He said, it is a beautiful bride, but it already has a husband. That's what Theodore Hotel said. It's a beautiful bride, but it already has a husband. So in his memoirs, he talks about the proactive process of ethnic cleansing. How are we going to disperse this husband, these people? How are we going to get them out of these lands? That is a political project that was invented in Europe because the European experience 
of the Jewish community is in contradistinction to the thriving, the peace, the prosperity, and the security that the Jewish people had in the lands of the Muslimin. And so at the outset, and by the way, you want to read, once again, a ex-Zionist, this is a self-proclaimed ex-Zionist, Jewish-Israeli academic. His name is Ilan Pape. He has a very important book called The Ethnic Cleansing of the Palestinian People. Read that book. He chronicles how from the inception of the Zionist political project, it has been a proactive measure of brutalization, of ethnic cleansing, of genocide, of theft, of ethno-supremacy, i.e., one group is identifiably supreme, the other group is identifiably inferior and to be treated as such. That's why today, when you see the sheer volume of genocidal rhetoric coming out of Zionist circles, talking about Arabs, not just Palestinians, talking about Arabs, talking about the Palestinian people, people in Gaza, people in the West Bank, what do you hear? Subhuman, animals, etc. All of that language is from the origin story of this political project. And when you look at the manifestation of the Zionist political project from the early 20th century, before 1948, what do you have? And this is once again chronicled, not by Muslim apologetists, this is chronicled by Israeli academics, Jewish academics and historians. Dr. Gabor Mate, who is himself, he identifies as an ex-Zionist. He was a Someone who really, initially, early on, he was tantalized by the idea, but then when he saw, understood, learned the brutalization, the theft, the genocide, the second and third class status that the Palestinian people were put under, he said, I cried for two weeks straight after visiting the West Bank. He said, I cried for two weeks straight. Dr. Gabor Mate, a Jewish man, an ex-Zionist, He's a human being. And you know what his expertise is? His expertise, he's a psychiatrist, and his expertise is in trauma. And, he's, and so he, when you listen to him talk, he'll talk about the terror, the abject, unreal violence, trauma, the brutalization of what has been happening to the Palestinian people for almost a hundred years. The Palestinian people have been under this brutal condition, under this occupation, Patient force. And so when people today are critiquing, when people today are critiquing, they are not critiquing Jews. That must be categorically clear. And this attempt, this attempt at trying to criminalize the critique of the Zionist project as somehow being anti-Semitic, this is an abomination. People today, the biggest critiques of Zionism are Jews. You can go all across and you can read the accounts, the analysis of thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews who will talk about their own harsh critique of Zionism. Christians, by the way, an interesting note to consider is that the biggest group of Zionists in the world today are Christians, they're not Jews. Because Christian Zionism, which is a messianic mission to bring about Armageddon, it actually predates Jewish Zionism. The biggest numbers of Zionists today are Christians, not Jews. So this project of today trying to conflate, oh, you're critiquing Zionism, oh, that means that you hate Jews. False, that's a lie. 
That's an absolute lie. It's a lie propagated so that no one critiques the brutal occupation of what is transpiring in the lands of Palestine, what is happening to the Palestinian people. They want to silence. That's why the attempts are today to do what? To try to silence it on college campuses, silence it in the media, silence it in all spaces. If you critique, you critique the brutal occupation, you critique the genocidal ways, you critique, you critique, you are anti-Semitic. That is a lie. And humanity today, by the way, is not accepting that lie. And so, brothers and sisters, when we today as a community come together and we exist as a civilization, we have to speak. We have to speak about these truths. We have to highlight. We have to talk about our heritage and our history. By the way, there are scores of Jewish people who do not know who their eyes themselves have been veiled from the history of Muslims and Jews. So we have to teach. We have to talk about a beautiful time, as Karen Armstrong said, when Muslims, Jews, and Christians coexisted. Because today, when you're hearing, and this is, this is important for the people who do not like critique of Zionism, to then speak up about the following. Because when, as human beings today, we hear the sheer volume of maniacal genocidal discourse coming out of the Zionist camp, you look at the cabinet of Netanyahu. You look at the Knesset. You hear language. You, hear, you see actions that absolutely make the, the head spin. Talking about turning lands into parking lots, decimating, eviscerating it, burning all down. Then you watch Zionist media and you see how they talk about Muslims and Arabs as animals and all of them should be killed, all of them should be cleansed, all of them gone, gone, gone. You see the brutal occupation that the people of Palestine have been under. You see the third-class citizenship that they've lived under for decades on end. In Jerusalem today, the Palestinian quarters have to cover their, their, their areas with nets because you have Zionist settlers who sit there and throw feces and garbage and urine, well-documented, well-chronicled by everyone, not Muslims, by Israeli uh, human rights agencies themselves. I've said this in previous khutab. Every human rights agency, every international um, legal agency has spoken about the brutal occupation of the Palestinian people. This is what people are critiquing. It is this reality. It has nothing to do with some nefarious existential hatred of Jews that is not a reality, that is a falsity, and it's a lie. And it's high time that we speak up against this. And if, the, if, if people who are Zionists or pro-Zionists do not like what I'm saying, then you explain to me how to process, how to make sense of the sheer volume. What, it, what is being represented when you have Israeli IDF soldiers singing alongside pop stars? And we've all seen these videos. Sheer volume of just genocidal songs and TikTokers who are sitting there laughing about throwing feces on the lands of Gaza and dancing over the graves. Talking, singing songs about, yeah, we're going to kill all of the Palestinian, the sons of bleep, 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 the most vile language. What, is, what ideology is producing this genocidal language, this genocidal disposition? You tell me. What, what is it? It's, it's not Judaism, so it has to be something else. And that is the critique today. That is the critique of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and everyone of this Zionist political ideology. It's the critique of that. It is not an indictment or some anti-Semitic trope to try to uh, nefariously attack Jews. That is not the case. Because when you look, when you look, and I'll close with this, inshallah, 
I'm, I'm closing, I'm closing. When you look at our history, as Muslims in this country, we have always engaged in rich interfaith work. ICPC as a masjid has always been a part of the interfaith project, alongside Muslim, Christians, and Jews. When the, when the, church of, when the um, Tree of Life synagogue shooting happened, and we were asked as Muslim leaders to come and stand alongside the Jewish people in their moment of trauma, we stood side, we eulogized, and we spoke about the evils that harm, that may harm the Jewish people. That is our heritage because that is our heritage from the time of the Prophet We have always existed with under, this underlying philosophy. It's a love of the human condition. It is a belief, the Muslim believes that every soul is sacred. That is a belief that is intrinsic in our theology. Anyone who kills an innocent soul is as if you've killed all of humanity. That is our theology. That is our governing theology that we care so much about the sanctity of the human condition. And we certainly want to see every human living in a state of prosperity, security, honor, and dignity. We want an end to brutal occupation. We want an end, not just Muslims, the human condition now, wants an end to genocide. There must be a ceasefire, the killing, the murdering. Why is it in Israeli prisons, why are there hundreds of kids? Why is no one talking about this? What ideology is producing a reality that imprisons kids? Kids, kids who come out so traumatized, who've been brutalized, arms broken, the most vile acts done to them. Why is that happening? Why is the world not talking about this? That's what people are crying out about. An end to the brutalization, an end to the occupation, an end to, the, to, to, the, to, to that type of agonizing reality. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us and guide us, uplift us as a community. Allah, Allah show, we ask you to show us the truth as a truth and bless us to follow it, show us falsehood as falsehood. Bless us to stay away from it. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullah wa lakum. Inna alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'inuhu wa na'udhu billahi min shuroori anfusina wa sayyati a'malina. Man yahdihi allahu falamudila lah. Wa man yudlil falan tajida lahu waliya murshida. Brothers and sisters, in closing, as I mentioned in the beginning of the khutbah, obviously the brutal campaign of death and destruction continues today in Gaza. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect our brothers and sisters in Gaza. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect the children of Gaza. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect the homes of the people of Gaza. Allahumma haqqin dima'ahum ya Rabb. Preserve and protect their lives, protect their blood, protect their honor, their dignity. Brothers and sisters, that reality is one that we can, at the end of the day, what fortifies our hearts and our souls, don't think for a moment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is heedless. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees, He knows. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we defer all of our affairs to Allah. Ya Rabb, I turn my entire self to you. Ya Allah, Ya Kareem, you see the reality that's transpiring. Ya Rabb, uplift and protect and honor our brothers and sisters. 
preserve them. Ya Rabb, Ya Kareem, preserve those lands, preserve our sacred sites. Ya Allah, Ya Kareem, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim, Inna Allah, Ya Amru bil Adli wal Ihsani wa Ita'i dil Qurba, wa Yanhan al Fahshai wal Munkari wal Baghi, Aidukum la'alakum tadakkarun, wa Ladikrullahi akbar, wa Allahu ya'lamu ma tasna'un aqim as-salah. الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الفلاح قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله تقيم واستوى تراس وسد الفرج فاباكم الله الله اكبر الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين اياك نعبد واياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر الله أكبر سمع الله لمن حمده الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين قل هو الله أحد الله الصمد لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا أحد الله أكبر سمع الله لمن حمده الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر
السلام عليكم ورحمة الله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Please, if you want to leave, leave, inshallah, quickly, quietly, and peacefully, because uh, we have a janaza now. We will pray Salah janaza, and uh, inshallah, the going to the cemetery will be the, after the second Salah. So please, we pray Salah janaza on our brother, so please bring him here. Jazakumullah khair. So uh, if you want to, uh, after that, please leave as, yani, quickly, because you will leave the room for 